Good morning, 11 o'clock church service. Good to see you out this morning. Thanks for braving the dismal weather to come out today. The rain, you had to ford all those flooded streets. Thank you, live streamers, for being with us as well. We're glad to have you. And if you're a guest this morning, we'd like to say welcome home. We're glad to have you with us in this service. Hey, you know, in Enterprise, Alabama, the city of Enterprise, Alabama, it's the only city in the United States that I'm aware of that has a monument to a bug. Right? They have a statue or a monument to a bug. Now, here's the trivia question for today. Does anybody know what bug is memorialized on that monument? Wayne, somehow I knew you would be have the answer, and some of you others had the answer as well. It's the bull weevil, the bull weevil. What's that all about? The town erected a Greek-inspired statue with a 50-pound version of the bug on top on December 11th, 1919. The plaque reads as follows, quote, In profound appreciation of the bull weevil and what it has done as the herald of prosperity, end quote. Okay, herald of prosperity. Now that's interesting because... The boll weevil actually has done billions of dollars worth of damage to farmers' crops in the 19th and the 20th centuries. So it was a herald of doom. How did it become a, this herald of prosperity now? Well, because it caused the farmers, at least in this area, Enterprise, Alabama, it caused them to diversify their crops. It was especially lethal against the cotton crop. So they began to diversify, and they planted peanuts and potatoes and tobacco. So in the three or four years that followed, while the rest of the southern states were spending millions of dollars to battle the bull weevil, Enterprise became the leading producer of peanuts in the country, and they were prospering. So they gave credit where they felt credit was due, and that was to the lowly bull weevil. Now, you may not have known this. On July 11, 1998, Two teenagers stole the weevil off of the statue. Those teenagers. And they breaking her arms in the process, the statue was so badly damaged, it could not be restored. So a perfect replica was made and erected on the base. The original damaged statue was moved to the Enterprise Depot Museum. So if you ever go to Enterprise, you can see the replica and you can also see the original. So that the original damage is a block away in that museum. So it is still there, but it is the lesser of two weevils. So yes, thank you. And uh, unfortunately, it doesn't get any better than that today. Now, I know what some of you are thinking. You're thinking, Steve, I mean, that's all very interesting, and that's a pretty good pun, but what does this have to do with anything? Well, what this has to do with anything is the whole idea of diversification. So the church has a crop as well. Our crop is not cotton. It's not peanuts. It's not potatoes. We have a crop of souls. You know, it's the Great Commission, and we have a crop of souls, but we have to be diversified in the way we harvest that crop. So we know, we're familiar. We're going to preach the gospel, the good news, and teach that. We want to love God, love people, serve others. Want to make a good impression and love people, be nice when they come in. But the thing that's left out in the process, it's often left out, is prayer. And so today, so we've been in this sermon series, Obey Everything That Jesus Commands. And the command that we're going to look at today is the command to pray to the Lord of the harvest to send workers into the harvest. So I'm just going to say four things. We're going to break it down. There are four factors that will motivate us to pray that prayer. The first one is an awareness of the need. When we are aware of the need. 
then we will be more likely to pray that prayer. So Matthew 9, 36, when Jesus saw the crowds, he had compassion for them because they were harassed and helpless like sheep without a shepherd. So here's the analogy. Those without Christ are like sheep without a shepherd. What does the sheep without a shepherd do? Well, it leaves its grazing there and it starves to death, gets stuck in a thicket, starves to death, and in the meantime, they're harassed and helpless. Harassed type of a life. Now, some people might not... We know people without Christ and maybe they seem to have it all together. But when you get beneath the veneer of confidence and whatever else, people have brokenness in their lives. That's what the Bible teaches, and that is, in fact, the human experience. So we accept that. Now, some people might think, hey, is there really a great need here? Maybe over in Africa, there's a great need. But here in Vero Beach and Indian River County, we seem to have a church on every corner. Surely, everybody is a Christian now in Indian River County. I'm glad you asked me that. I did a little research, and listen to this. There are 160,000 people in Indian River County, Florida, living in 57,000 households. Now, how many churches there are? Anybody want to guess how many churches there are in the county? Yes, it's 107. 107 churches. So, if we actually had reached, if we were hypothetically to reach all the people in Indian River County and divide them up evenly amongst the 107 churches, then there would be 1,500 people in every church in Indian River County. All 100 plus of those churches would have 1,500 people. But we don't have that. In actuality, the average attendance in the average church in America, but also in Indian River County, is 100. Is 100. Average church has 100. Now that's an average. So you're going to have a few what we call mega churches. In the county, that would be a 1,000 people or more. That's a mega church. You've got a handful of those. You've got a whole lot of churches that are 50 people or less. But when you average it all out, it's about 100 people. So that being the case, since that is the case, that would indicate that our saturation level as far as the gospel in our county is at about 50%. Or less. And I think it's a fairly good metric to look at church attendance because when people are saved, the gospel always moves people into fellowship and into church fellowships. So there are 50% or more of the people in our county, maybe as much as 90%, who have not been reached, no matter how good or bad they are, they are not saved, they cannot know ultimate meaning in life, cannot have a purified, clean conscience before God, and without Christ, they have no hope of eternal life. So is there a need? Yeah, of course, there's always a need. There's a need worldwide, and there's a need right here in our own backyard. So that helps to motivate us. What we're talking about is to pray this prayer to the Lord of the harvest. Here's a second factor, is compassion. To have compassion for people. Jesus had compassion on them, Matthew 9, 36. Now, if you look at the original language, I don't do this too often, but if you do a word study on compassion, the word is splachna. S-P-L-A-N-C-H-N-A, splachna in Greek refers to this region right here. It's where we've got these internal organs like the heart, you got the liver, you got intestines in there, and that's used for compassion because when you feel strong emotion, you know, you feel a tightening in your stomach or you get a gut feeling, we say. If you're watching a rerun, A Little House on the Prairie, you're going to, in every episode, you're going to be crying at some point. I call that the splunkna moment in that episode. You're watching a sad movie. And so this is the compassion of Jesus. And when you read his life in the Gospels, Jesus had splunkna. He had compassion on just about everybody that he encountered. 
He was traveling one time and he, he comes across a widow woman and there's a funeral procession because her son has died. So she's lost her husband. Now she's lost her only son. And the gospel says Jesus had compassion on her. It's Splunkna. Uh, Jesus told the parable of the Good Samaritan. And the Samaritan's walking by. There's a man wounded on the side of the road. The Samaritan had compassion on him, had splunkna for him. Jesus told the story of the prodigal son. So one of two sons, he goes off and wastes his inheritance. He's taking a walk on the wild side. Every day the father is watching for the son to return home. Finally, he sees him coming back in the distance. And the father had compassion on the son who's returning, had splunkna for him. This is one of our great needs, us, we in the church. Now, those outside of Christ, they have a need for salvation. We have a need to see people with the compassion that, with which Christ sees people. Sometimes we're a lot more like Jonah than we are like Jesus when it comes to compassion. Right? Remember Jonah? He's a missionary. He's sent off to preach to the people in Nineveh. He does not like those people. And to be fair to Jonah, they're not very likable people. But nevertheless, that's his job. So he goes and preaches to them. Very short message. Yet 40 days and Nineveh will be overturned. Nineveh is going to be destroyed. He preaches, he preaches, he preaches. And then when he's done, he goes up on a hill and sits on top of the hill that's got a nice view of Nineveh because he wants to see the fireworks. And he's just waiting for God to rain down fire and brimstone. He wants to be, to be able to see it real good. But a terrible thing happens. From Jonah's perspective, that the people listened to his message and they repented. And so there was no judgment. And Jonah throws a hissy fit. And then he's complaining to God. He's got a plant right there that gives him some nice shade. And the plant dies. God allows the plant to die. And so Jonah begins to complain to God. And God says to Jonah, he uses that as an object lesson. And you remember what he said. He said, Jonah, you have compassion. We're talking about compassion. You got compassion on this plant. I mean, you didn't do anything to make it grow. It's here today, it's gone tomorrow. You can compassion on that plant. God says to Jonah, should I not have compassion on the city of Nineveh, a town with 120,000 people? Now we have 160,000 in Indian River County. And God says 120,000 people in this city, should I not have compassion on them? And of course, by implication, Jonah, should you not have more compassion on Nineveh than you do for this plant over here? And we think about ourselves, are there some things for which we have splunkna, for which we have compassion, and they really don't deserve as much as we give it. And then there are other things like people made in God's image that we don't care as much about. Well, maybe. I lived many years in Orlando. When I was living in Orlando, I, was a, I followed the Orlando Magic professional basketball team. I, I was a big fan. I would go to the games. I went to the games. And in 2009, John, I don't know if you realize this, in 2009, the Magic went to the NBA Finals. They were playing the Lakers. They had a chance to be the NBA champions. And I was, I was you talk about Splunkna, I was Splunknawing all over the place. I mean, I stayed up late to watch the West Coast games. Normally, I'm a 9 to 5. I go to bed at 9, get up at 5. But I stayed up late to watch those games. I'm on the edge of my seat. My stomach is all on knots, you know, to see how this is going to turn out. And they were, they were playing. They came within one layup of beating the Lakers and being the NBA champions. Somehow, they missed an easy layup at the end of one game. If they had made that, they would have won and been the champions. But they didn't, and they lost and I was very sad after that. But in retrospect, I began to think, why did I invest 
so much of myself into that team and into that series and into that game. I mean, after all, these are a bunch of overpaid, right, coddled, freakishly tall people who are playing a silly ball game, and I'm so invested in that. I stayed up late to watch those games. How many nights did I stay up late in 2009 praying to the Lord of the harvest to send workers into the harvest field because there are many, many people in Orlando who are without Christ? The answer to that is zero nights. Zero nights. Ever since November 4th, when I woke up after the election, I've had a little bit of a splunknaw about the election and the election results and what's going on. I'm not saying that's necessarily wrong. I'm just saying we invest ourselves. We have compassion and feeling and passion about certain things, and that's okay. That's part of life. But what we want to make sure is that we have compassion on the same things that God does and what He cares about. He's got the splunknaw the compassion about people who are outside of Christ. And our prayer is not only that God... The Lord of the harvest would send workers into the harvest, but also that we would have the heart of Christ and see people the way he sees them. And when we do, we'll pray this prayer. All right, so we're talking about the factors that motivate this particular prayer, awareness of the need, compassion. Thirdly is seeing the potential. I've got four, and the third one is seeing the potential, seeing the potential. Then he said to his disciples, verse 37, the harvest is plentiful. So we've got a metaphor change. We're changing from sheep now to a harvest. Bringing in the sheaves, bringing in the sheaves. All right, so there's a potential harvest. Not only are these people that are harassed and helpless like sheep without a shepherd, but they've got the potential to be Christ followers and to be saved. So Jesus saw that. We have to see that. He was talking to, uh, Jesus was talking to his disciples one time, and he mentioned to them how hard it is for rich people to enter the kingdom of heaven. He says, it's hard. It's like a camel trying to go through the eye of a needle. And when he said that, the disciples felt like he'd closed the door to all potential for anybody to be saved. They said, man, if the rich people can't be saved, who can be saved? And Jesus answered, well, with man, with men, it's not possible. But with God, all things are possible. One thing we want to remember is when we're talking about salvation, this is a God thing. It's a supernatural thing. To be born again is an act of God. and We can't take God out of the process. God, the battle belongs to the Lord. If we have a great harvest, let's look ahead to 2021. We say here at Vera Christian Church, if we have a great harvest of souls, it won't be because we're so slick. <laughs> you know, we're, we're so slick in our presentation. We've got such a great show. We're never going to have the greatest show here at Vera Christian Church. I mean, we'll never have a better show than Hollywood. We can't compete with Hollywood. We're not in competition with the other churches. No, we're just, we are not that effective. We're broken vessels. But that's okay. Because God can get it done with broken vessels as long as God's involved. In fact, He likes to do that. I've been rereading uh, writings of J.R.R. Tolkien. Lately. So what did J.R.R. Tolkien write? He wrote The Lord of the Rings, all right, the trilogy there. Now that's in the genre of fantasy fiction. So he's writing about elves and dwarves and wizards and orcs and trolls and dragons. Well, now he's writing in the late 20s, 1920s, 1930s, late 1930s, that span. And so people have been reading about those kinds of creatures in literature before Tolkien wrote about them. But there was one creature 
that Tolkien invented, he created out of his imagination that had never been written about before. And these were the, the heroes in his novels, They're the protagonists. Oh, so what creature did he invent? Hobbit. He invented the hobbit, created the hobbit. The hobbit's called the halfling because they're really small and they're weak, but they're humble and they're good-natured. And so in the Lord of the Rings, I'm not going to do a deep dive into it, but they've got the golden ring that has to be destroyed. And these hob- the hobbit's the ring bearer. He's got to take the ring back to the mountain of Mordor, throw it into the fire, and all these dark forces are arrayed against these little hobbits. But somehow, with the help of their friends, they're successful. They, they accomplish the task, and they're victorious. J.R. Tolkien, as I said, wrote in the late 20s and through the 30s, during, a little bit before and during and after World War II. So there's some allegory here. And in World War II, as you know, the Axis powers of Germany and Italy and Japan, are, are, they're allied against the West. They've conquered most of the European countries. And you've got England for a while there was the only one that's holding out Before America entered into the war, England's the only one that's holding out against the Axis powers. And J.R.R. Tolkien says that he patterned his hobbit, the inspiration for this creature, the hobbit, were these humble English farm boys who lived out in the rural countryside most of whom had never traveled 15 miles outside of their own county in their whole lives, who were drafted into the army to fight against these great dark forces. And somehow, these farm boys prevailed. With a little help from their friends, they prevailed. That was the inspiration. You know, like I said, You look around, we're not all that. We're not all that special and we're the broken vessels. But always remember the battle belongs to the Lord and when the Lord is in it, the potential for a harvest, don't ever think because we haven't had a a big harvest in a long time. Don't ever think that's not possible. It's always there, right there within our grasp with God's help. So when we believe the potential, we're motivated to pray the prayer. And then the fourth thing is simply obedience to the command. Obedience to the command. In Matthew 9, 38, so Jesus says, pray the Lord of the harvest to send out laborers into his harvest. This is obey everything is our sermon series. Jesus says to pray this prayer, so this is the prayer we're going to pray. Now I know we say, well, Steve, this is a prayer that we should be the answer to. Pray the Lord of the harvest to send out workers and where the workers are being sent out. I know that. I get that. I've actually got a sermon written about that that I've preached in the past. If I had wanted to have a nice, easy week last week, I would have just warmed it up and preached that sermon today. But I don't want to get ahead of the prayer. I don't want to get ahead of the prayer. The, the thing here to obey, the command to obey, is to pray the prayer. God loves to bless His people, but He loves to bless His people in answer to prayer. Now, as we look ahead to 2021, we're moving in that direction. Will 2021 be a year of great harvest for Vero Christian Church? I don't know. 
Maybe we'll have to wait to 2022. Maybe it'll be 2021. But I firmly believe this. It will not until and unless God pours out upon us as a church a great spirit of prayer where you are trusting me in my prayer time and I am trusting you in your prayer time. First of all, that we have a prayer time. And in that prayer time, we are going and we're beseeching the Lord of the harvest. God, please send more workers into your harvest field. The prayer comes first. Always in history and in biblical history, the prayer comes before the harvest. In the summer of 1876, grasshoppers decimated crops all across Minnesota. As the crisis mounted, Governor John Pillsbury, like Pillsbury Biscuits, that John, John Pillsbury, proclaimed April 26, 1877, a statewide day of prayer and fasting. All schools and businesses closed as people gathered in churches to pray and fast. The next day, the temperatures soared abnormally. It's abnormally hot. And for three days, horrified farmers watched billions of grasshopper larvae wiggle into life. But on the fourth day, the temperature suddenly dropped, plummeted, and frost killed all the larvae. And people were astounded. And shortly thereafter, the remaining grasshoppers disappeared into the horizon. The people were so thankful for this providence that in Cold Spring, Minnesota, they constructed the Grasshopper Chapel. And you ever go to Cold Spring, you can visit. The Grasshopper Chapel is still there. A grateful generation embraced the memory of their desperate day of prayer and fasting of God's intervention that saved the harvest. May our prayer for workers be just as desperate. God's intervention be just as powerful. And the harvest be just as bountiful. Let's pray. Our Father in heaven, two things in prayer today. Number one, we pray. I pray for me. We pray as a congregation that in our hearts you would give us the compassion for people that Jesus has. We're going about our business. and We're banking or shopping, rubbing shoulders with our neighbors, and we look upon people with the compassion in the heart of Jesus. And the other thing we want to pray is to you as the Lord of the harvest to send workers into the harvest field. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.